1: know about William Shakespeare. But there was another writer at the time who was even more famous than the Bard, John Lilly. His works were radical, and frankly, he was even more keen than Shakespeare on gender-bending characters and unconventional love affairs. You ladies may see that Venus can make constancy, fickleness, courage, cowardice, modesty, lightness, working things impossible in your sex, and tempering hardest hearts like softest wool. Oh, yield, ladies, yield to love, ladies, which lurketh under your eyelids whilst you sleep, and playeth with your heartstrings while you wake. On this edition of Not Just the Tudors, I'm joined by Dr Andy Kesson to find out more about John Lilly, why he's disappeared into obscurity and whether he might just be the forgotten Shakespeare for our times. Andy is a reader in English literature at the University of Roehampton who has a terrifyingly long list of research publications to his name. All to boot entertainingly and brilliantly well written. And he has also done a couple of major funded public facing projects in the last few years. One of them was Before Shakespeare, which looked at why and how commercial playhouses came to be built in London during the reign of Elizabeth I. And the one he's working on now is called Box Office Bears, which is a fabulous title. And it's a new research project on animal baiting in early modern England. And you can find out more about both of these at beforeshakespeare.com. And Andy is also responsible for A Bit Lit, which is a series of recorded conversations, a bit like this one, but on film, about things that are literary and theatrical with researchers and creatives and performers. So that's at abitlit.co. But above all, his expertise is on John Lilly. So hi, Andy.
0: Hi, Susie. Thank you for having me.
1: It's really good to see you and to hear you, of course. So tell us about John Lilly. Who was he and why should we care about him?
0: Well, I love the idea. You're suggesting that he's more famous than Shakespeare. Yeah, he has a claim to being the sort of early modern J.K. Rowling, I suppose. He's got a claim for being England's first novelist, one of the first professional playwrights, and certainly the first playwright working in the playhouses to see a sequence of plays Go into print. So he's in various different ways innovating. He starts his writing life out with two early novels or prose fictions, which become the best selling literary work of the entire period for over half a century. Lily's outselling not just Shakespeare, but Ben Jonson. Pretty much any literary material you can think of, Lily is outselling for a good 60 years. And he goes on to write at least eight plays, which find their way into print, and there too they become. The first plays to go into multiple editions. So there's a real sense that people are seeing this writer's name, John Lilly, and racing to the bookshops to pick up a copy of his latest prose fiction or play. He contributes too to religious controversies of the day, and even there when he's lending his pen to work which is published anonymously, those works too sell out very quickly. So there's, as I say, this real hunger for anything he might be producing.
1: Given that he was so popular and such a bestseller, the obvious question is, why have we forgotten him?
0: Yeah, he occupies a strange place in early modern theatrical culture in a number of different ways. So he's writing 10 years earlier than Shakespeare. And you mentioned the Before Shakespeare project, which I ran, and that was really about how and why theatres come to be built in the Elizabethan period. And once you go just those 10 years earlier than Shakespeare's writing career starts happening, we really start operating in a terrain where material doesn't tend to survive in great numbers. And this is why Lily, someone whose work goes into multiple editions, he's also one of the first playwrights to be printed at all. So hundreds of plays are being produced for those early playhouses every decade. But in the 1580s, for example, which is when Lily starts writing and is the early period of the playhouses, only five plays survive from that decade, a decade that would have seen hundreds of plays on stage. We have five plays that go into print in that decade. So the literary witness for literary remains of that period is particularly partial and fragmentary. So I guess that's reason number one. Reason number two is he's writing for a different kind of theatre company to someone like Shakespeare. Shakespeare's writing for adult men with a couple of boy players in his company. Lily is writing for an entirely child company. And we now associate children and kids' performance with apologies for any mums and dads listening who I'm about to offend in terms of school shows that they might have seen, but we now associate children performing with the kind of school show format. In Elizabethan times, these are royal choir boys who are performing. They are the kind of elite form of performer in the period. So it's a high status performance, but it's not one we now readily associate with the kind of theater culture of Shakespeare's time. Lily also writes in prose, where Shakespeare tends to write in verse. So he's a different writer just at the level of what he looks like on the page and how he sounds in the ear and how an actor might want to respond to his work. And then unfortunately, there's a history, I think of misogyny built into what happens to Lily's reputation. Lily's plays are full of completely fantastic female characters. The longest role for a woman in early modern drama is in John Lily's The Woman in the Moon, completely fantastic play. It's kind of the female Hamlet in many ways the character Pandora is never off the stage. She's actually created on stage by the female deity. God in this play is a woman. She creates the first human woman on stage. And then the play is about that woman's life. And it's the most amazing role. And his plays more generally are full of female characters. There's a play called Galatea, which is about two girls who fall in love with each other. And there's a long history, particularly in the 19th century, of his work being demonized on the basis of gender. Believe it or not, his name becomes part of that. He's called Lily, where Shakespeare has this reassuringly macho name of William, which sort of means penis, and Shakespeare, which sort of means shaking his penis. So yeah, he's got this kind of double whammy phallic (laughs) name, whereas Lily has a girl's name. And people really do say that in the 19th century as a reason to be suspicious of him. And he gets strongly associated with French and effeminate forms of masculinity in the 19th century and has never really recovered from those misogynistic attacks on his writing and his identity.
1: That is fascinating. But it sounds like he is the man for our times, though. It sounds like he is representing women and children, a variety of people on stage, in a way that would make him a really exciting playwright to revive now.
0: I certainly hope so, because we're actually staging one of his plays, Galatea, which I just mentioned. In 2022, I'm working with theatre maker Emma Franklin to stage this play. Yeah, his plays are full of, in Galatea's case, an almost entirely working-class community, almost entirely women and with two central characters who fall in love with each other. And it's kind of the play which invents that Shakespearean comedy model of running off into the woods, falling in love with someone whilst dressed in someone else's clothes, not really understanding the gender of the person you're falling in love with, not being entirely clear about your own gender identity. Uh, Lily's the person who really hands Shakespeare that model. But where Shakespeare kind of straightens out those stories at the end with a reassuringly heterosexual marriage, In Lily's Galatea, the two central characters have some kind of sexual contact in the middle of the play. They go off stage and one of them says, let us make much of one another in the grove off stage. Very good chat up line. And they do. And they come back on stage and they're becoming aware that the person they're in love with is potentially the same gender as them. And they still want to get married. And at the end of the play, the community gather around them and astonishingly become very excited about the idea of these two women falling in love with each other. The goddess of love herself, Venus, shows up and the community turn to her and say, how like you this, Venus. And she says, I like well and allow it. The play does complicated things with that ending, but broadly people go off stage in celebration of this queer relationship. It's remarkable.
1: That does seem really remarkable, both for its age when it was written, and in, as you say, for the centuries since, Let's get this right. So we've got what appears to be two women who are dressed as men and who then fall in love with each other. I love the Elizabethan chatter line. Let's remember that one. (laughs) Let us make much one of another. And that's now what you have to say to someone if you want to get them to go off into a grove with you. And at the end, this couple marry. Same-sex relationship. They marry and that's approved by the community or by Venus?
0: Yeah, so they're identified as girls dressed as Boys rather than women dressed as men, which I think probably is a kind of important distinction in that world of the play. And Venus makes them an offer. She says, Go off to church to get married, and if you would like it, she says, I will turn one of you into a boy at the church door. Now, what's really interesting is that that has tended to be where scholars end the story that one of them becomes a boy. But although the girls accept this as a proposition, it's never indicated whether that will happen and which of the girls. Will choose to become a boy. And so, what we're left with in the world of the play is two girls going off stage to get married with the community rallying around them, whilst dressed as boys and being played by boy actors. So, there are kind of multiple queer readings being offered to us, and indeed a heterosexual reading being offered to us. But even that heterosexual ending is a transgender ending. One of the girls agreeing to become a boy so there are all kinds of different layers happening there none of them especially normative none of them really reading like a conventional heterosexual marriage
1: that is very interesting and as you say it's a queer play however you take it <laughs> whatever you do with it however you resolve it in your mind and it does seem to be something as you intimated that was influential on Shakespeare but he has straightened out his endings with it but he I mean he reuses that plot lots of times doesn't he
0: He never leaves that plot alone, you know, he's worrying away at it in the early plays like Two Gentlemen of Verona and with The Tempest, which is probably not his last play but is one of his last plays, the second scene of The Tempest is basically restaging the first scene of Galatea, they're both scenes about grumpy dads explaining to their bewildered and slightly frightened daughters who they are and why they are in the world that they find themselves in. So he's playing with this play across the sequence of his career and there is a general reaction I think in Shakespeare's time in that generation 10 years later against a predominantly female fictional world so one of the things that's really amazed me with the work we did on before Shakespeare is that before 1587 we actually know of more plays named after female protagonists than plays named after male protagonists which is extraordinary from a Shakespearean point of view Shakespeare never once names a play after a single female character but in fact that's the norm when Lily is writing And Lily's working for a woman who owns the Blackfriars Playhouse, where he's staging his plays. He's writing for Elizabeth I, and his plays go on to be published by Joan Broom, who's the first female publisher of plays. So all of this work is entirely circumscribed by kinds of female agency. And it's not just this play which is pushing away at the idea of female sexuality and of female agency. Galatea is pitched as a kind of sequel to an earlier play, which is called Sappho and Feo, or Sappho and Fowl which is all about a virginal queen, Sappho, who is interestingly named after the most famous queer female poet. And the play is about Venus being irritated by Sappho's virginity and wanting to make her fall in love with the boy, Phaeo. And the, the conclusion of the play, sorry for all these plot spoilers, but the conclusion of the play is Sappho abducting Cupid, refusing to fall in love with the boy and saying at the end of the play, I shall make love a toy for ladies and I shall keep it only For ladies. This stuff is explicit and it's absolutely happening on stage at a level of dialogue and at a level of plot.
1: So I'm just thinking about how (laughs) explosive this is. It's almost unimaginable. Is this a play that Elizabeth I might have seen?
0: It's a play that we know that she saw when the plays are published. The title page is advertising the fact that she saw these plays. We know that she saw Galatea, for example, at Greenwich just down the river from where I am right now in fifteen eighty eight. So yes, she's in the audience watching these plays at a time when she's watching an awful lot of plays which are about women and sexuality. Lily's not the only part of this story. His work is some of the few bits of work which is surviving from that period.
1: I guess by using the name, they do know that she's a lesbian, a queer poet in Elizabethan England. There must be some deliberate reference to that in that choice of name.
0: Absolutely. They would not have been using the label queer, which I guess goes without saying, but I think what Sappho brings with her actually is bisexuality and a frank willingness to talk about multiple sexual partners it's the cross-section of lovers that she brings with her and the celebration of that love and that lust and that sex so in some ways the queerness might not have been quite as shocking to this audience actually as the willingness not to define yourself via chastity or monogamy and that's what she brings with her
1: i'm thinking of the play of the weather which when i was working at hampton court tom betteridge and greg walker and gregory thompson staged and it was a play that was by John Haywood, you know, this, produced in the 1530s at court. And one of the extraordinary things that came out of that staging, for me, was quite how crude uh, I think some of the lines are in terms of the references they make to Catherine of Aragon being the old moon that leaks and Anne Boleyn implicitly Anne Boleyn being the new moon and so there are sort of references that seemed quite shockingly sexual at the time and this seems like another example of that doesn't it that actually because perhaps of the great press of the Victorians on our idea about sensibilities before our own period we might think that people in the 16th century were not talking about sex openly, but this suggests that they were.
0: Yeah, they were absolutely talking about sex openly. Yeah, I mean, the play of weather is a nice way to think about this. It's quite hard to explain in the form of a podcast, but I'll do my best without visuals. But, you know, so much of the staging of that play at court is about who gets to be close to the monarch's body, who has access to be in a position of advising and getting advice from and empowerment from the monarch. And that's absolutely what Lily's plays are about. As well they're about admittance to and proximity to or distance from the monarch and they stage that question again and again and again and yes they very often sexualize it and they very often think about it in terms of gender but the play of the weather is also a nice example of the difference that lily brings i think because the play of the weather i think has one female character in it whereas as i say lily's plays are often bringing a predominantly female cast and just to kind of give you a sense of the scope of this susie i've got here the plays That Elizabeth I watched in the Christmas season of 1578 to 1579. She watched plays called The Three Sisters of Mantua, The Cruelty of a Stepmother, A Greek Maid, The Rape of the Second Helen, and then she watched A Mask of Amazons. So she watched an entire season structured around female fictional lives and I don't know about you thinking about the play of The Weather but astonishing to put on a play called The Cruelty of a Stepmother to Elizabeth I who had Something like 30 million stepmothers. You know better than I do how many women Henry VIII managed to marry. But yes, calling a play for cruelty of a stepmother and staging it in front of Elizabeth I feels engagingly crass to me as a decision. But there is a season entirely structured around women as a central part of each story.
1: Which, of course, makes sense that she would watch plays about female power. It, it totally makes sense. So It's obvious once you think about it. But you're absolutely right about the stepmother. I mean, the obvious stepmother is Catherine Parr, And, you know, I'm quite a fan of Catherine Parr, but there is some talk about whether Catherine Parr facilitated her fourth husband, Sir Thomas Seymour, in, you know, attempted sexual abuse of the young Princess Elizabeth and possibly one reason why Elizabeth doesn't marry. I mean, one doesn't want to read too much into plays that are being put on because otherwise we might have to come to the conclusion that they're saying about Sappho and about Elizabeth that we've got a bisexual queen, which I think is probably going too far, isn't it?
0: Well, I think what that story of Sappho is doing is posing compulsory heterosexuality as a problem to be overcome. So Venus tries to impose a sexy boy on a queen who wishes to be a virgin. So that plot is asking questions about where heterosexuality and sovereignty belong together. And the answer it gives is that they do not belong together. And it reaches that conclusion that love from now on will be a toy for ladies and only for ladies. And then Lily gives us, explicitly as a sequel, a play about two girls falling in love with each other. So I'm not sure what they're saying about queerness per se, but they are radically troubling heterosexuality and the assumption that a woman should be expected to get married. And in many ways, that's a conventional thing to be saying in front of the Virgin Queen, but it has really quite extraordinary implications for wider Elizabethan society and sexuality, I think.
1: Yes, and of course I suppose that she does use love as a toy insofar as her courtiers have to pretend to be in love with her, don't they? So perhaps it's speaking into that idea as well.
0: Absolutely, and technically courtiers should not be getting married without her consent either. So she does play a sort of Venus-like function within the role of the court and you will be punished politically and in terms of your rights if you do marry behind her back. So she does occupy a role like that.
1: But it seems really radical as you say, about what it tells us about society and status and sexuality. And it feels like it's making us rethink the Elizabethans.
0: I think so, and I hope so. And I think it also makes us rethink the things that we do know really well from this culture. So I'm someone who's always a little bit anxious about quite how monolithic Shakespeare is in the way that he's come to stand for a whole culture of playwriting from that period. We have about 400 plays that survive from this period, and we tend to stage maybe about 14 of them, all of them by Shakespeare. And I think we take for granted that a lot of the things that Shakespeare does in those plays reflects his time, often the patriarchal nature of his work, all kinds of issues around sexual consent and lack of consent in his work often seen as early modern. Oh, there he is, he's just being an early modern playwright. Whereas actually, he seems to be responding against some of the things that someone like Lily is doing. And Shakespeare's first appearance in print isn't as a playwright, or at least isn't in a play that he's written. He first appears in print in a pamphlet attacking him. And it attacks him using a particular line from one of his plays, Henry VI, part three. And the line that it tries to quote is, "'O tiger's heart wrapped in a woman's hide.'" as if misogyny is sort of Shakespeare's calling card in that early part of his career. And at that point in his career, he's written Taming of the Shrew, he's written Titus Andronicus, and he's written those Henry VI plays, none of which are happy about women in public places. You know, these are plays about Joan of Arc, Margaret of Anjou. Taming of the Shrew kind of has its plot contained within the title of the play, these are predominantly male worlds which are invidious and unfriendly to women who stray into them. And that's quite different, I think, to the world that Lily gives us, which is kind of often the other way around. From BBC Radio 4.
1: seems to me that you're posing a very interesting idea. I was just talking to Duncan Scarcard the other day for this podcast about Bridewell and about the punishments that are meted out to women who are wayward, who are disorderly and unruly and generally having sex outside of marriage. And so we are very much living in a period where patriarchy does appear to be enforced at a sort of societal level, that if you step out of line sexually, you can be whipped for it, you can be punished for it. Do you think that some of Shakespeare's popularity comes from the fact that he is responding to the challenge that having a female monarch and having people like Lily write in ways that empower women, the challenge that provides to masculinity. And he's one of a sort of wave of people reinforcing the patriarchy and that explains some of his popularity. I'm not writing him off and obviously he's brilliant, but I'm just wondering if there's something about responding to kind of anxiousness about masculinity that means that he gets a place in men's hearts.
0: I mean, he's a great writer, but the reason that he's thought of as the greatest writer is really the British empire. And that's why he's become this great world figure. And it's in the 18th century, at the height of the empire, that his place in the English canon is consolidated. And that's really on the basis of his masculinity. And it's on the basis of his Englishness. So the francophobic nature of his history plays, the way that they like to rubbish and mock the French nation, that makes lots of sense to an 18th and 19th century Englishman, pre and post Napoleon. And likewise, a play like Taming of a Shrew, It's kind of ahead of its own time in all the wrong ways. In a way, women have in many ways far more agency and freedom on the streets of Elizabethan England than they did in the 18th century. And Taming of a Shrew and its insistence that women belong in the home kind of makes much more sense 200 years later in the 18th century than perhaps it did in the 16th century. So yes, I think there are reasons to be wary of where Shakespeare has ended up and why we keep telling these stories again and again, which don't offer roles to contemporary actresses and do tell us very particular stories about how men and women should be.
1: So that's one reason why you're putting on Galatea, I suppose. It's to say that there's other Elizabethan plays that we should be engaging with. How's that going?
0: It's been a long-term project. We've been workshopping it for five years. We're working with a company of queer, trans and disabled scholar practitioners, most of them of colour, and thinking quite hard about where diversity sits in classical theatre. It feels particularly in relation to issues like transgender performers or disabled performers that mainstream classical theatre has this unfortunate tendency to cast a single representative of diversity, a single actor who uses British Sign Language, for example, and says here we are, here we are with a very diverse cast. And actually by doing that, all they really do is reproduce marginalisation because there's one person in the cast who's speaking sign language and the rest of the people in the cast are unable to communicate with them. So we've been trying to think about what happens if we recenter people who are used to being marginalised within a single company and yes thinking about this play is a play which is speaking in a very different way to Shakespeare to many of these issues. How it's going is a difficult question to answer. We have it commissioned we've not been allowed to announce that yet because we are staging it with a festival who have a 2021 festival to promote so until that festival is finished this year we can't release details about what we're doing next year but we're staging it next year and hoping it will go on a tour after that and I'm pretty excited I think it's going to be a wonderful show if anyone's interested they can consult the Before Shakespeare website where we've documented much of the rehearsal period we've done so far we've tried to be fairly open access with our rehearsal process inviting people into rehearsals and allowing them to document what we're doing so that's all there on the website
1: And in this staging of it, I think what I've heard you say is that you're speaking out of the text, that your experiments with the form come from the fact that Lily has written such a radical play. Or do you think that actually there is something to be done in terms of suiting it to today's environment? Because it hasn't been performed for hundreds of years, presumably. And if you're going to do it now, you may as well do it in a way that speaks to us. Or can both those things be true?
0: Yeah, I think both those things can be true. Emma Franklin and I both are suspicious of very text-central model of production. Again, mainstream classical theatre have voice and text departments and treat text very seriously, which feels to me like quite an anachronistic way to think about text. Like, text in Shakespeare's time is one of the cheapest things on stage. It's radically malleable, plastic. You can adapt it, you can cut it, you can change it. Anyone listening to this podcast who knows Midsummer Night's Dream or Hamlet, you know, where we have a play within a play... The actors and the audience are constantly saying, can we get rid of that bit? Can we change that bit? Can we rewrite that section? Can you make that bit up? Can you ad lib there? And that's absolutely how theatre happened in the period. So this idea that we must always do what the text says isn't really driving our production. On the other hand, we both love the text and we have incredible faith in it. And when we have performed the play, We have had complaints from audiences watching who have said to us, why have you translated it into modern English? And the answer is, we haven't. (laughs) And I think, again, the quality of this text is so unlike Shakespeare that it feels much more modern in many ways. And one of the unfortunate things about what happened to John Lilly in the 18th and 19th century, where he got demonised, as we were talking about earlier, his writing got described as unnecessarily complicated and verbose and not very eloquent. And it's none of those things. It's incredibly eloquent. At the the middle of Sappho and Feo, when Feo is asking how to act on his desire for Sappho, he has a love consultation from somebody and asks for advice about what to do. And her advice is two words and two verbs, both in the imperative. Her advice is go dare, go dare. And this is someone who will just put in really fantastic monosyllabic, clear advice and you know as I said to you earlier the two girls in Galatea leave the stage saying let us into the grove and make much of one another I mean, that's just wonderful English and it's a play which is surprisingly immediate to modern audiences I think.
1: That's so interesting because I was going to ask you about his prose and my assumption was that it's just not as good as Shakespeare and therefore we've cast it aside because, you know, it's more complicated or more verbose. But actually you're saying it's quite the opposite and it's the verbosity of Shakespeare that has remained.
0: It can be those things in places. And his prose fiction is where people tend to start with his work. And the first of his two prose fictions, and particularly the beginning of his first prose fiction, is dazzlingly verbose. The rhetoric feels very deliberate, and I guess the word I'm trying to avoid using because it's the word everyone uses, is artificial. Like The sense of stylistic choice is on display, I think. And I've always said asking people to read that first book by Lily and expecting them to get on with Lily is like handing someone James Joyce's Ulysses as their very first novel. You know, it's, the reason it was important and the reason it was such a huge success was precisely because it was so stylistically naughty. It was deliberately stylistically ridiculous. But in his plays, quite quickly, Lily becomes much more interested in a more immediate way of expressing characters' thoughts. And actually, it's characters who are deliberately rhetorically over the top. It's those characters who get mocked. So again, in Galatea, at one point, the two young lovers happen across Diana, the goddess of hunting. And Diana just starts talking about this, that, and the other in relation to hunting and using all this hunting jargon. And one of the young girls turns to her and says, I understand not one word you say. (laughs) So he's still interested in writing which is unclear and strange, but it's no longer the central way in which he himself writes.
1: What do you think we can know about the theatre before Shakespeare because of Lily? I mean, does it give us an insight into how playhouses were working, what was commercial, what people wanted to see?
0: What was commercial is a difficult question to answer from Lily because he's writing for a very particular part of the theatre market. So choirboy Boy companies that I mentioned he was writing for are situated in two different theatres in London, at St Paul's and at the Blackfriars. And those theatres are teeny tiny. We think St Paul's probably had a maximum capacity of 60 people. And this is at a time when the large amphitheatres of London probably held about 2,000 people. So they occupy quite different places in the market. Entry would have been more expensive. I don't think it would have been so expensive that only elite or aristocratic people could go, but certainly it was more expensive. So he does occupy a very particular part of the market. I wonder if that's one of the reasons why his plays then sell when they go into print, that that becomes the DVD of the rock concert that you couldn't afford to go to, for example. So there are kind of other ways of accessing him other than through the theatre itself. I think one of the things his work clues us into is this question of gender. So London goes from having zero playhouses to having 10 in the space of about a decade. And this is a time when nowhere else on the planet seems to have any playhouses. And by the time somewhere like Spain starts to see playhouses opening in the 1570s and 80s, you never really see more than one playhouse per city. So London has this really distinctive theatre scene of so many playing spaces that it looks like a significant proportion of Londoners are in the theatre any one afternoon just to keep the businesses going. And about 50% of those playhouses have women at the top of their leadership structures, women who are helping to run the playhouses, people who own or are leasing the playhouses, but also women who are financing or even building with their own hands these buildings. So the most famous of the playhouses in the early period is the theatre, the place which gives us this now very English word, but at the time, a strange ancient Greek word, which probably was quite hard to to read and to understand when it first appears as the name of the playhouse. And John Brain and Margaret Brain, his wife, helped to fund the playhouse, the building of the theatre. And when they run out of money on the venture, they literally pick up the tools and help to build it. Margaret Brain, five years later, once she is widowed, is beaten off the premises by the Burbage family, who wish to claim the theatre as their own property and have no interest in conceding the part that she played in helping to build it and now in owning it. And it's the Burbage family who become famous via Shakespeare. James Burbage goes on to be Shakespeare's central actor. And there he is as a young teenager, literally with his mum, beating Margaret Brain off the premises by broomstick. So I think the kind of gender games that we see in Lily remind us that the supposedly all-male world of the Shakespearean theatre was brought into being by men and women. The moment in which this battle takes place over the theatre reminds us that that marginalisation of women doesn't just happen in retrospect, but is happening at the time as well.
1: Thank you for that. And your reference earlier about the female publisher and the fact that women are hidden but are very much involved in this. And actually also the point about boys and choir boys playing, because they're considered pretty much a separate gender in Elizabethan society, aren't they?
0: Yeah, and Galatea is completely fascinating as a document for thinking about gender because several characters, not just the central two characters who are thought of as girls dressed as boys, but several of the other characters in the play express uncertainty about their gender status. And gender is articulated in that play through a bewildering number of different terms. So, for example, the play seems to think that a lad is not the same thing as a boy and is constantly asking questions about these various gender terms. Is a virgin the same thing as a girl, for example? The play's constantly kind of pitching these various different terms and asking what they mean in relation to each other. So yeah, it's an absolute minefield for thinking about non-binary forms of gender. Gender is a form of continuum.
1: What else should we know about John Lilly? You know, we've thought about his gender bending, for lack of a better word. What else do you think attracted people to him or should we know about him?
0: He had a particular thing for certain kinds of exciting stage effects. One of them is gonna sound super boring, but stay with me on this for a moment, but he's especially fond of extreme forms of stillness. He really likes to give the longest speech in each of his plays to a character who cannot move their body or their arms. So the longest speech in Galatea is given to a girl who has been tied to a tree. The longest speech in his first play, Campasbe, is given to a philosopher who is stuck inside a tub the longest speech in Sappho and Phao is given to Sibylla, the ancient prophetess who is 600 years old and stuck in a cave. The longest speech in a play called Love's Metamorphosis is given to a tree who used to be a nymph in a very kind of Ovidian way, a nymph who was turned into a tree and then delivers this absolutely enormous speech. So one of his stage effects and one of the things that really interests him is this very perverse idea of giving the play's longest speech to a character who doesn't seem to be able to move. Lily also likes magical on-stage transformations. So hilariously in Sappho and Feo, Feo is introduced as an already hot boy. Everyone comments on how gorgeous he is, but just in case he isn't gorgeous enough, Venus sends him off for a supernatural makeover, at which point he becomes the most beautiful boy on the planet. In Love's Metamorphosis, three girls are turned into a stone, a plant, and a bird, respectively, and then turned back. In his play Endymion, a witch, is turned into a bush which then grows into a tree. So Lily's absolutely fascinated by things that turn into other things, humans that turn into objects and vice versa. And I think that too is there in his writing style. One of the things he became famous for was pitching binaries against one another and then looking at how something which is supposedly the opposite of something else folds in on that thing. And I think that's there in his staging, his fascination for watching one thing turn into another.
1: And presumably, we have no idea how they would actually stage something like a girl becomes a stone.
0: (laughs) Yeah, no, we don't really know. It's amazing how quickly you can do things on stage, though. There's a whole kind of scholarly tradition of worrying away at how these stage effects happen. And then I workshop with some actors, and they instantly make it happen very, very quickly. There's another character in Love's Metamorphosis, a young girl who was able to turn into Odysseus, a very specific superpower, it seems to me. But she does. She just turns into Odysseus for a scene and then turns back again. (laughs) And I did wonder when I worked at a theatre company how on earth we would do that. And it was as simple as the girl playing the girl, walking off stage, and at the same time the actor playing the girl as Odysseus walking on through the next door, you know, at exactly the same moment. And the audience instantly got it. Something which looked impossible on the page could be achieved in a matter of seconds In front of an audience and the audience immediately understood what was going on. So it's amazing what that can teach us when it comes to these kinds of issues.
1: That's very salutary. I'm hoping that you'll come back at some point in the future and say how box office bears has been going Mm. but I would love to get a bit of an early reading on what you've learned so far about animal baiting before we leave each other.
0: Well despite the fact it's so incredibly distasteful to us now, it's probably more attractive to an Elizabethan audience, probably bigger than theatre was then, and probably bigger than football is now to a contemporary audience. And if you have a foreign visitor come to you in London, you take them to the animal baiting. So it seems strongly associated with Englishness. As far back as the Roman period, England was associated with big dogs, mastiffs, And in fact one of the reasons why the romans were interested in colonizing england to begin with not just tin but also dogs and so i think one of the things that you're watching when you go to a baiting event where you're watching just to be clear dogs being set on bears or bulls or other kinds of animals you are watching the dog as a kind of emblem of englishness and this is also a sport which is what they called it at the time they called it a sport or a game this is a sport that can be read in terms of gender because the bears were usually presented to the audience as female or very often presented as female, and they're owned by the bear ward, the guardian of the bear, who is usually the person who also owns the arena that you're watching the baiting in. Whereas the dogs are being brought by local, presumably terrible male aristocrats, who are absolutely there to demonstrate their own manly prowess and masculinity. So the size of the dogs, the ferociousness of the dogs, and the success of the dogs in the fight are all ways in which you demonstrate your masculine power as an aristocrat. So going to see baiting is counterintuitively all about human gender and national identity, I think. Yeah, the project has very recently started, so I probably can't say much more than that. We were warned when we started that we wouldn't find many references to animal baiting, and in the first month we found over a thousand just from the very early days of the research. So I think we're learning how much it saturates English culture. And John Lilly, who seems so far removed from that world, does have at least one rather glorious reference to a bear in a play called Mother Bombie, which is set in Kent in the present day, in the present day of the audience. And the play features two characters who seem to have a form of mental disability, which the play characterizes as foolishness. And one of the ways in which the play channels that foolishness is by giving them unlikely, unexpected non sequiturs to say. And the young girl in the play, who is described as foolish, is asked what she's doing out on the streets. And she replies, ah, are you there with your bears? are you there with your bears? It's a brilliant question. I don't quite know what it means. If anyone listening has any idea, please do let me know. But bears are haunting the imagination of characters in Lily, even though Lily himself seems quite far removed from the world of bear baiting.
1: That's fascinating. And it seems that, therefore, that animal baiting is horrible on more than one level. I mean, it's it's obviously horrible for us as a modern audience, thinking about The treatment of animals, but then also thinking about all the significance as well. That's really fascinating. So we will be watching this space. Good luck with the research and we want to hear more. But before you go, just one last thing. Do you think it would be unfair for us to call Lily the queer Shakespeare?
0: I guess I wouldn't call him the anything Shakespeare, just because I quite often feel quite grumpy about Shakespeare. In 2007, Gary Taylor and a series of editors published a brilliant collected works of Thomas Middleton, which was the first time Middleton's work had ever been collected. And he called Middleton our other Shakespeare, a phrase which became very resonant in the kind of press responses. To the edition and I published my book on John Lilly shortly afterwards and suggested that Lilly might be our other Middleton which was a rather cheap way of trying to <laughs> bask in the coattails of the Middleton edition. I like to think Lilly sort of stands for himself and I think historically one of the issues has been that he gets compared to Shakespeare and that has not usually been to his advantage and that sort of is how Shakespeare's contemporaries tend to be understood now, that we think of them as slightly dodgy, broken down versions of Shakespeare. John Webster, for example, the writer of The Duchess of Malfi, is often seen as the kind of Shakespeare with a mental health problem of some kind. He appears in Shakespeare in Love as a psychotic boy torturing rats. So I think comparisons to Shakespeare have tended not to be in the favour of his contemporaries. I don't quite know what the solution to that is. But whether he's for queer Shakespeare or not, is it probably up to how much you love Shakespeare?
1: <laughs> well, I think we've learned today that Lily is very much not just a poor man Shakespeare. And actually that we are talking about someone who's doing something really radical and innovative and powerful, talking about gender and thinking about status and presenting new ways of seeing society that completely transcend the expected solutions that we've come to know in Shakespeare so thank you for introducing him to us and us to him thank you a great pleasure it's been really really fun to talk about him you've been listening to not just the Tudors from History Hit if you enjoyed this episode please recommend this podcast to your friends and family and do share it on social media and also please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and leave a rating or a comment. Thank you. History is full of extraordinary people, the Tudors being just a handful. In my latest film on History Hit, we meet Bess of Hardwick and go inside the incredible house that she built, a house that defines the elegance and grandeur of the Elizabethan age, a house fit for a woman who climbed to the top of the Tudor social ladder. To find out more about the life of Bess, and many more fascinating figures from the past, sign up via the link in the description with the code TUDERS for an exclusive discount.